How did the 1973 coup in Chile and its follow-up in 1976 Argentina contribute to the rise of neoliberalism in South America? Why did neoliberalism survive the rise of the left-leaning pink tide governments on the continent? Will the rise of Argentina's Alberto Fernandez in particular signal a fundamental sea change in the resistance to neoliberalism in the Latin American region? How are outside forces and global economics driving governments to embrace or reject neoliberalism? How is the role of indigenous peoples affecting the resistance to the neoliberal paradigm? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, we examine the popular rejection of IMF-prescribed neoliberal policies from Ecuador to Chile to Argentina to Bolivia, as exhibited by demonstrations and elections in the month of October, and look ahead to where this resistance is likely to lead. We first get a historical perspective on the rise of neoliberalism in South America from writer and global research editor, Professor Michel Chalcidovsky. We next hear from writer, journalist, and geopolitical analyst Pepe Escobar about the factors shaping the demonstrations and choices at the polls. Finally, John Onewanika Shurto, editor of Intercontinental Pride, joins us to talk about where indigenous nations fit into the pushback against neoliberalism. On this week's program, Month of Fury, Latin America rises up against neoliberalism. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 1st, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper explained in a press conference Tuesday that a new U.S. force will be stationed in eastern Syria to protect the oil fields. Barbara Starr, CNN's Pentagon reporter, pressed Esper on whether the U.S. military mission there will be to prevent the Russian or the Syrian government forces from accessing the oil at Deir Ezzor. Esper was forced to admit that the mission was designed to prevent the oil and revenues generated from being used by any group other than the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, otherwise referred to as the Kurdish militia who had been U.S. allies in the fight to defeat ISIS. Retired General Barry McCaffrey questioned whether the U.S. has stooped to piracy and stressed that Syria owns the oil in Deir Ezzor. International law seeks to protect against exactly this sort of exploitation, said Lori Blank, an Emory Law School professor and director of its Center for International and Comparative Law. That comes from the article, We're keeping the oil, says Trump. Military conflict between Russia and the U.S. looms in northeast Syria. By Stephen Sahuni, posted October 30th, originally published on Mideast Discourse. So far... The rebellion has left countless people injured while two Syrian immigrants lost their lives. 
Some local analysts say that this is the most serious uprising since the one in 2015, which included the You Stink campaign reacting to the appalling garbage crises in Beirut and to the worsening social disaster. But others, including this author, are convinced that this is actually the most serious political catastrophe Lebanon has been facing since the 1980s. One hears anger on every corner of the capital, in cafes and local stores. Trust is broken. Even those who used to be far from any political activities are now supporting protesters. That comes from the article, Beirut is Burning, Rebellion Against the Elites Has Commenced, by Andrei Volchik, posted October 30th, originally published at New Eastern Outlook. The political spectacles, the transparent war lies, the fake narratives, obscure, foundational issues. The right to self-determination is foundational to international law. Syria has every right to take any and all necessary measures to regain its own oil fields. Washington has zero rights to steal the oil. Syria did not ever invite Washington and its allies like Canada to impose a regime change war. That comes from the article, Fake Narratives as Cover for High Crimes, the al-Baghdadi isis Daesh Fairy Tale, by Mark Taliano, posted October 30th, originally published at the author's website, www.marktaliano.net. Let's backtrack to 2008 and then 2011, when the CIA first recruited, trained, funded, and armed the terror groups in 2008 up to 2011, when they launched the so-called civil war as part of the Arab Spring, which, as we all know, has nothing to do with a civil war, but it's a U.S. mercenary war against the legitimate Syrian government. Why is it important to remember this? Because Washington has made it its goal to ultimately control Syria. Syria is part of the list countries mentioning in the PNAC, or Plan for a New American Century, that must fall in order for the U.S. to reach full global hegemony. To reach that goal, the Middle East is a key square on the geopolitical chessboard. This should always remain in the back of the heads of those who negotiate and draft the new constitution. The idea of new constitution is good, but even if all parties agree, it will only be possible to apply it when the U.S. leaves Syria. That comes from the transcript of a press TV interview with Peter Koenig, under the headline, Syria, the launch of a constitutional committee, a sign of hope for Syrian people. Posted October 30th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. A wave of popular revolt against neoliberal policies and neoliberal governments is washing over countries across South America. Mass protests in Ecuador and Chile have forced the country's leaderships to reconsider their respective austerity policies. And in Argentina, Uruguay, and Bolivia, political leaders outspoken against IMF-prescribed structural adjustment policies are winning popular support. What we're witnessing at least according to some observers, is a continent-wide revolt 
against neoliberalism, an economic philosophy which got its start in South America in the 1970s and more specifically in Chile, following the overthrow of elected President Allende, enabled by a 1973 coup with the assistance of the CIA. Professor Michel Chosodovsky, the award-winning author, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Ottawa, and founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization in Montreal, lived through both the 73 coup in Chile and, less than three years later, the coup in Argentina under Operation Condor. The Global Research News Hour got hold of Professor Chosodovsky recently to get his reflections on what happened in these Latin American countries at the birth of the neoliberal experiment and what he makes of the current uprisings the world is witnessing. I, I really am keen to uh, get your take on uh, the events of uh, 1973. I mean, you were there. Uh, just tell us a little bit about what you were doing and, and your own encounters with uh, Sebastian uh, Piñera at that time. Well, essentially, I was teaching at the Catholic University of Chile, which was really, uh, you know, it it was the the hunting ground of of the so-called Chicago boys. They were they were there, and they were in fact they were very much um, in favor of the of the of the military coup that took place in September 1973. Uh, I mean, there were several trends within within our, the Institute of Economics. But I think what is, is fundamental, and I lived through the coup, is that uh, this was an engineered process of impoverishment. Uh, the market mechanism and, and neoliberal uh, doctrine were not the driving force. It was essentially it, it was essentially uh, very carefully designed increases in prices, freezes in wages. You could say that it was, in effect, it was a planned uh, trigger of poverty. And now I recall when the when the coup took place immediately thereafter, a few weeks later, there, the first economic reforms came in, and the price of bread shot from 11 to 40. Okay. Um, and uh, at the same time, they froze the wages. So we saw essentially the, the you know, the, we saw the initial expression of what we today call neoliberalism. There was no such uh, terminology at the time. Uh, the IMF was not involved in, in, the, in these measures. It was a CIA op, uh, and it, it had the support, obviously, of, of, uh, of macroeconomists who were brought in to, to advise and so on and so forth. But I think what's important there is that if you look at Chile uh, since the 1970s, uh, there has been continuity uh, in relation to the government of Pinochet, which, which led to massive poverty and, and, and uh, uh, as well as the dismantling of all the reforms which uh, which Allende had, had introduced. But uh, bear in mind that there's been no constitutional reform. The constitution in Chile dates back to 1980, at the height of the Pinochet regime. And uh, and what now, what the, the protest movement is, is, is uh, asking is, is uh, essentially to repeal the, the constitution, and also to repeal the whole process of privatization, 
uh, freezing wages, uh, austerity measures, and, and, and a whole, uh, you know, so, whole social political apparatus, which essentially extends the military dicta dictatorship into the 21st century, giving it a so-called human face, because these are no longer military governments, they're civilian governments. But Sebastián Piñera um, is, uh, is a copy and paste of Pinochet. He's, he has a diff well, he's not quite, doesn't quite have the same symbols behind him, but his policies are very similar to those which took place in, in, the, in the course of the, 19th, the, the mid uh, 70s to 1980s. So I'm wondering at that time, because you, you describe it as a, a policy of, of deliberate impoverishment, what was the thinking in academic circles uh, throughout Latin America? Was it recognized as such, or was there a, a gullibility in understanding, well, this is the way that we improve the, our economic lot uh, as countries? I would say that, that among leftists, there was an understanding more of the human rights dimensions, the, the police state. There, there was not much understanding of the fact that this was ultimately an economic project which was imposed and, and which served more or less as a dress rehearsal for things to come. In other words, the reforms which were imposed on developing countries as of the 1980s, not only in Latin America, throughout the world. But what I can also say is uh, while the, the Pinochet government uh, was, uh, was brutal, um, the, the reforms which took place in the 80s and 90s were far more despicable. I, I, I'll give you an example. I, I was in Peru um, in, uh, in 1990, 1990-91, and it was a change in government. And in fact, uh, what happened is that fuel prices went up 30 times overnight. Now, that, that was unprecedented in the history of Latin America. And you can, you can imagine what happens when fuel prices go up 30 times. They literally destabilize the, the national economy. Recently, we've, we've seen prices in, fuel prices in Ecuador uh, under Lenin Moreno, uh, essentially an IMF-sponsored program where um, uh, diesel prices double and the price of fuel goes up 30-40%. But we haven't seen anything equivalent to what we saw, let's say, in the, in the, in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, where the, which was absolutely devastating. Hmm. Talk about... Um Next door in Argentina was because uh, you were also there uh, just uh, around the time of that uh, government flipped over in in seventy six. What what kinds of uh, were there any uh, I don't know lessons learned from Chile that that got applied in Argentina? What was your experience or understanding of that uh, uh, development? Well, in my mind, um, the coup in Chile was a dress rehearsal for the coup in Argentina. And it was serving the same interest, and, and it was the same, uh, you know, it was the same uh, political elites which were involved. Henry Kissinger was involved in Chile. 
he was also involved in in, uh, in Argentina. David Rockefeller came in and met the junta. There were there were differences, of course. Uh, what what was significant is that the that in Argentina you had the dirty war. In other words, the the military uh, had the support of the Catholic hierarchy, um, and uh, at the same time, uh, it uh, well, it was a different process. I I could say that from an economic and social point of view, it was not as devastating as in Chile, uh, because uh, wages went down, but not by by the same. Uh, amount as, as we observed in Chile, where there was a freeze in wages. But at, on the other hand, the, the, the levels of oppression through, uh, through uh, uh, arrests and torture, of course it's well documented, was, was, uh, was far more serious than what happened in Chile. Uh, and in large part because in Chile, uh, the cardinal of Santiago Cardinal Silva Enriquez took a very firm stance against the Pinochet regime right from the beginning, and that that stance actually saved a lot of lives. Whereas in uh, whereas in Argentina, uh, the Catholic hierarchy uh, actually supported the junta and even collaborated with the junta. Hmm. Now there has been. Um left-leaning uh, governments elected over the years. There was uh, Bachelet in uh, Chile. There was uh, Kirchner in uh, Argentina. There was uh, Lula. And yet, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they continued to uh, embrace uh, neoliberalism. So how do we make sense of uh, that, you know, like pink-tide governments uh, continuing to go along with that neoliberal paradigm? Well, I mean, there was opposition to the neoliberal agenda in, in several countries. I think the most forceful opposition did come, well, of course, it came in, in countries like Venezuela, um, uh, but uh, the history is somewhat different. But in, as far as Argentina, certainly under the presidency of Cristina Kirchner, there was a, uh, there was a, a, a clear stance against neoliberal policy and against dollarization. Now, on the other hand, if you look at Brazil, um, under Lula, and I met Lula be actually before he became president, and uh, I understood he didn't really understand issues of external debt or didn't want to understand. But what Lula, under, you know, under, uh, under the, uh, you know, the emblem of combating neoliberalism, he in fact allowed for neoliberalism to, to prosper in, in Brazil with a sort of a human face. And, and the irony is that uh, Lula's appointment of governor of the central bank just so happened to be uh, a, a Wall Street um, uh, CEO uh, of, it was Boston Fleet at the time, and now that's Bank America. So that this the guy who was appointed to uh, you know to manage the central bank was in fact a Wall Street financier. Uh, so that in effect they had foreclosed the possibility of an independent monetary policy. And 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 I, ironically, 
the relationship between Lula and the IMF was a very good relationship. And the, the managing director of the, of the IMF actually stated um, and said, uh, this is our best president. Iso es nosso melhor presidente in Portuguese, saying that, that Lula was very easy to work with uh, as far as IMF reforms are concerned. Uh, there was a dollarization of the currency with the, you know, with the real and so on. So both, uh, both his predecessor, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, as well as Lula, were in fact, uh, I would say they were pushing a populist agenda. It's not to say that they weren't said there were not areas of progress during Lula, but in effect, as far as the basic premises of macroeconomic reform, they abided by the, uh, by the IMF World Bank uh, uh, concepts. And of course, there were the Brazilian elites and so on. Um, now, so what I'm, what I'm saying is that, in fact, what we had in, in, in Latin America is that many uh, governments which claimed to be leftist and progressive were, in fact, co-opted. That's certainly true of Bachelet in Chile. It is also true of Diego, uh, um, uh, of Daniel Ortega, sorry, of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Uh, they, under a leftist, uh, you know, under a leftist uh, 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 <laughs> platform, they actually did abide by IMF conditionalities and so on. Hmm. Well, Looking at the, uh, the, the 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 uprising that we've been seeing over the last few weeks, uh, you know, Ecuador, uh, Chile, there's the uh, the recent elections in Argentina, uh, Uruguay, uh, Bolivia, and and it all points to the direction of, of of popular disaffection with this neoliberal paradigm. Do you d- does that give you any sense of optimism, or or is this merely sentiment that's going to get flattened? Well, I, I think we mustn't confuse the mass movement in Chile, which, uh, which harnessed uh, more than a million people against neoliberalism and against the, you know, the inheritance of the, of the military period. Uh, Pinochet 2.0 equals Sebastián Piñera. But we mustn't confuse that with, uh, with the events which are currently occurring in Bolivia, uh, where Evo Morales uh, won the presidency, and now there are threats by the so-called opposition, which are right-wing opposition, to to unseat him or to to demand a second, uh, you know, uh, uh, that the second um, turn of the presidential elections uh, take place. So there's that element, and then uh, then uh, in turn uh, you have the situation in. Uh, in Ecuador, where there is a, a, a meaningful protest movement directed against the government of Lenin Moreno, which has more or less adopted uh, the IMF uh, program, and that IMF program was formulated back in the, in the month of May. It's a very drastic uh, program, which is intended to impoverish, to privatize social services, and so on and so forth. And 
and uh, and essentially to to, uh, to more or less undermine what had been achieved uh, under the government, the progressive government of uh, of Rafael Correa. But I don't see that these protest movements actually are going to lead anywhere because they don't question the fundamentals. They, they, the fundamentals is is uh, is that the currency is dollarized. Uh, that the IMF and the World Bank and the Washington consensus dictate macroeconomic reforms, that Len- Lenin Moreno, despite being called Lenin, is co-opted and is ultimately a neoliberal. Mm. Uh, so that they're different, uh, they're different types of movements. I think the one in Chile is far more significant because it questions the whole historical process, uh, which has evolved since the 1970s. Could I get you to comment on uh, what, where, what you see the, uh, uh, the, the other governments, uh, particularly the United States, the uh, Western governments, uh, you know, doing? Because, I mean, as we know, in 1973, uh, you mentioned Kissinger and his, the CIA and, and their involvement. Do you see the hand of uh, the U.S. and other Western governments uh, in trying to direct the series of events currently in Latin America? Well, certainly, because they, well, for one thing, they are involved in regime change. They are uh, intent upon co-opting. They are intent upon undermining Venezuela and and Cuba as alternatives to neoliberalism. And they're also intent on on undermining all forms of cooperation. Uh, which have historically existed in Latin America between different countries. Uh, so, in other words, the whole process of of, uh, of, of uh, social movements and how they would be integrated at, at a uh, you know in the entire continent. Um, but the, the other dimension of that is if we if we examine neoliberalism, neoliberalism started up. Uh, something which was largely applied in so-called developing countries, in other words, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and so on, with devastating macroeconomic reforms. And that describes the situation in the 1980s and 1990s. And what is now occurring is that this uh, model of reform, um, which, um, uh, which triggers collapse in, in, uh, in real wages is now being applied in the European Union. And the irony is that the managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, who actually has a criminal record in France, she was accused of fraud and, and so on while she was, uh, while she was um, Minister of Finance in the, in the Sarkozy government, well, she has just been appointed to the European Central Bank. Now, what, what I'm suggesting is that within the European Union, there's a neoliberal agenda. Uh, we know that. And it, it may be, up to now, it has been somewhat different to the one applied, let's say, in, in Latin America or Southeast Asia. But I think it's essentially what we're going to see is a process of third-worldization of the European Union where the IMF recipe might be applied to a bunch of other countries. They've already been applied to, 
to, you know, to countries like Greece and Portugal, but they may be extended. And uh, the fact that now these various institutions, uh, both the central banks, the international financial institutions located in Washington and so on, they interface with one another. They talk and they, they, they represent the same interests in, in uh, you know, in Wall Street, uh, uh, London, uh, Frankfurt, and elsewhere. And um, it's, I think it's ironic, of course, that, that somebody like Christine Lagarde, who's a former IMF uh, managing director, uh, has been appointed with a criminal record to chair the, to preside the, the European Central Bank. She starts her mandate uh, next Friday, hmm. and um, November 1st. And that, I think, um, points to a very major shift in the direction of, of macroeconomic policy within the, within the European Union. Fascinating insights. Uh, Professor Chosodovsky, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Delighted. We've been speaking with Emeritus Professor of Economics and award-winning author Michel Chosodovsky. He joined us uh, from uh, his home outside Montreal. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. On Wednesday, October 30th, Chilean President Piñera announced that he was cancelling two major international summits, which were to have taken place in Chile during the months of November and December. Joining the Global Research News Hour recently was veteran Brazilian journalist, geopolitical analyst and writer Pepe Escobar. He's written extensively about the Latin American uprisings, including in a recent article for ConsortiumNews.com entitled, South America Again Leads Fight Against Neoliberalism. We first had Pepe comment on the motivations behind the cancellation of the APEC and UN climate change summits. Well, Piñera had to do that. Can you imagine having an international summit with one million people in the streets? <laughs> That's more than obvious, you know. Uh, Look, there's so much, I'm sorry, bullshit going around about uh, Chile, uh, the reaction of Pinera, Trump saying that foreign actors interfere. In fact, if there are any foreign actors that might interfere with the Chile protests, would we'll be our usual suspects, because this is a protest against a failed neoliberal model that in the end destroyed the livelihood of the Chilean population. It was very good for the Milton Friedman-esque elites in Chile. In fact, when you go to Santiago and you go to a few a certain uh, Tony neighborhoods in Santiago, uh, you see that uh, you are living in Pinochetist times, in fact. Uh, it's an extremely unequal country. Uh, just like mo most uh, uh, countries in South America, inequality is absolutely horrendous. Uh, the model, the economic model that, by the way, uh, the Brazilian finance minister, Paulo Guedes, is trying to apply to, to further destroy Brazil, I would say, is the same Pinochetist model that now is being proclaimed loud and clear by millions of Chileans absolutely failing 
So can you imagine Chile or Santiago as a, a window to the world hosting a, an Asia-Pacific economic summit? It could not possibly happen. We don't even know if Pinera is going to last too long. Uh, if the protests continue and um, uh, the Chileans are saying, no, we are not uh, backing off. Uh, this is uh, 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 a protest against the system. It's not specifically about, uh, uh, you know, a few raises here and there or too many taxes and all that. It's, in fact, against neoliberalism as a failed system. So uh, we could expect something absolutely radical from this government. Of course not. It's absolutely impossible. Uh, just like Macri. Macri in Argentina, he was expelled by the Poles. This is something that will have to happen in Chile against Pinera. There are no elections in sight. So I wonder how they're going to at least try to go around the protests and what kind of carrots they're going to, to offer. There are not many, in fact. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it makes total sense that uh, no APEC, of course. So there's, there's got to be some two or three plan Bs. Uh, these summits are planned one year in advance. So canceling them with only a few weeks uh, before, it's an absolute bureaucratic and logistical nightmare, in fact. Well, they could have it maybe in Mar-a-Lago. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? There does seem to be a double standard when it comes to the, the coverage of this uh, popular unrest. Uh, Venezuela, the opposition, uh, there seems to be a lot more sympathy within uh, among the uh, U.S. and uh, other uh, international players, whereas... Uh, or, or Hong Kong, for that matter. But when it comes to Chile and, and other countries, well, it must be the Venezuelans or, or even the Kremlin getting their, you know, interfering. Would you like to comment on that uh, apparent double standard? But this is so obvious, you know. Uh, I, I was in Hong Kong on and off for the past two months, in fact. Uh, I covered it extensively. I talk, I talk, I try to talk with the black blocs. Uh, I talked to the business leadership in Hong Kong and they were, what, three weeks, four weeks ago, they were already pissed. They said that this is enough. They're destroying our economy. And in fact, the past 48 hours, we had a, uh, a practical confirmation that Hong Kong now has entered a technical recession. And this was basically because of the black blocs, not the peaceful. Pro there are peaceful protests, of course. And a great deal of the Hong Kong population is in favor of peaceful protests because they are protesting essentially against the corruption of their local government. It's not necessarily about China. Uh, but the black blocs, in fact, they turned this into um, a fight against their ghostly idea of China. That's one thing. So obviously, we, ha we had this uh, until a few days ago on the front pages of all Western mainstream media uh, and networks 24-7. Chile is and uh, uh, Ecuador it's very, very complicated for Western mainstream media because these are real grassroots protests against neoliberalism. So you cannot have extensive coverage in Western mainstream media because it goes against the prevailing narrative, which is neoliberalism is the cure of all ills. Mm. Lebanon and Iraq, also extremely complicated because in Iraq, same thing grassroots protests against uh, mega corruption in uh, the whole political spectrum in Iraq. But obviously the usual suspects started to instrument, tried to instrumentalize it straight from the US embassy in the green zone, by the way. 
Lebanon, the same thing, extremely complicated, protests basically against the inequality, cost of living, and the fact that the Lebanese economy had been squeezed, especially for the past few months or, or, or uh, over a year, uh, by American pressure over their central bank, uh, by the fact that the Americans don't want the current government because it has bolized part of the government. So each of these um, protests, they have different uh, causes, specific causes, but the overall uh, people are fed up with uh, essentially uh, an extremely unequal economic financial <laughs> non-level yeah. playing field. And of course, uh, you, you never expect mainstream media in US or in Europe to cover this properly, not to mention mainstream media across South America. You only read a proper coverage of what's going on in Venezuela uh, in the Boli uh, during the Bolivian elections, the protests in Ecuador and in Chile, if you go to alternative independent media, especially on the net. Could you talk, speaking about uh, alternative media, I'd like to go to your recent article on for Consortium News. Uh, you seem to highlight the Argentinian elections as a major game changer in the fight against neoliberalism, uh, providing a new blueprint for a more just and equitable economic development. Uh, I know you were in Buenos Aires uh, this past summer. Uh, what yeah, do so we, yeah. yeah. So what, what do we know about uh, President Fernandez and the, the challenges that he has to confront and the capacity uh, or even the sincerity that he brings uh, in terms of instituting uh, the necessary reforms to reverse this uh, direction the country's been in under uh, Macri? Uh, sincerity, there's no question about it. Uh, um, Fernandez is a very serious character. And, and Cristina, for all her faults, uh, she is committed to to at least trying to go against a little bit of uh, uh, social inequality uh, across uh, across Argentina, in fact. The problem is, uh, like, um, uh, this is something that a, Brazilian, a former Brazilian foreign minister, Celso Amorim, told me. Uh, he's going to be under fire from all sides, Fernandez. It's going to be very, very hardcore. Uh, the IMF, because of the 58 billion they st uh, loan, they still need to disburse uh, an extra 5 billion. Uh, Macri's government, they spent all that money. In fact, there's not, there's not, uh, Argentina, uh, if I remember well, Argentina for, um, uh, foreign reserves for the moment are li a little over $10 billion. It's not mm. absolutely nothing. The country is totally devastated, industrially devastated. Unemployment is very high. Unemployment among people, you know, 18, 25, 18, 30 is over 40%. It, it's horrible. What I saw, I, ne I never saw what I saw in Buenos Aires two months ago, you know, poverty all over. There's mass hunger in Argentina. Can you imagine an extremely rich country, natural resources, mass hunger. And this was only four years of Macri. Huh? Uh, this guy is uh, essentially a cipher, uh, a former playboy millionaire with a huge Oedipus complex that was prefabricated essentially by uh, an Equatorian guru, uh, a guy who uh, very much a Cambridge Analytica style, uh, manufactured Macri out of focus groups, and big data and all that. So uh, you know, you know what we had against him, uh, especially running for governor of the province of Buenos Aires, which is the economic heart of Argentina, essentially. Uh, 
uh, a guy called Axel Kisilov, very young, he's uh, 48. He was uh, uh, Christina Kirchner's former uh, economy minister. And uh, he went all over the province, 135 cities and towns, uh, almost 200,000 kilometers in a battered Renault Clio uh, <laughs> uh, with his campaign chief and his press officer. And they were on the road full time in their campaign and they won because they were talking people's language. And he did something absolutely brilliant that I mentioned in my article, in fact. Uh, he was uh, translating uh, central bank economic data and all those numbers, very complicated numbers, into uh, you know people's uh, credit card balances uh, or the prices they pay in the supermarket in a language that anybody could understand. And at the same time, explaining, look, if I'm elected, I'm going to try to change this, uh, you know, practically like this, 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 and that. Fantastic. Uh, Fernandes did something similar, of course, much more complicated because he had to explain to everybody, look, it's going to be very hard. We are going to be under fire because of uh, uh, American <laughs> vulture investment, Wall Street, the city of London, the IMF, you name it. But we're going to try. We're going to try at least to reverse four years of total destruction under Macri. People completely understood that. Argentinians are very well informed. There's a lively press. People read. The Buenos Aires has the largest concentration of bookshops on the planet. So it's a very well-educated population, even mm. the lower middle class, even the working classes. So there is a chance. I, I, I see it as the most important laboratory in the global south anywhere now to see how you try to revert the ravages of neoliberalism is going to be extremely difficult but they are on it and they have support from uh, uh, think tanks in argentina an excellent crop of intellectuals other intellectuals across latin america in brazil in venezuela like uh, alvaro garcia linera the, the bolivian vice president you know there's a lot of intellectual firepower say look look let's try to 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 help argentina and do and do everything together because then we can set an example not only for south america and for latin america but for the rest of the global south as well I, I can't ignore the fact that this is all happening in a, his, in, a, in a global context where there's fierce competition for a lot of the same natural resources that is in abundance in Latin America. You alluded to that earlier. I mean, rare earth minerals, oil, certainly gold. And, and I'm wondering if, if there isn't some sort of, uh, you know, what kind of an impact those larger macroeconomic realities may be play, having uh, in the, the incentivism on the part of the ruling class towards neoliberalism, which is facing this uh, pushback. Well, the, pro the problem with the with the the ruling classes in each individual Latin American country is that they are among the worst in the world, and I've seen most of them. I travel a lot, especially for the past thirty five years, and in Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, these people are the worst of the worst, comparable to in Egypt, in India in Indonesia. It's absolutely horrible. They are a fifth columnist. They are comprador, classical comprador elites. They don't care about what happens uh, uh, in the country, in fact, as long as they have uh, the opportunity to, to buy uh, 
uh, a first class ticket out of the country if they're going to get stuff, which is what they do all the time. They go to Paris, they go to London, they go to New York, etc. So and obviously it's very exploitative. Most of them are uh, are involved in dodgy businesses. In fact, uh, in the case of Argentina, uh, you know, dodgy partnerships. Uh, this involves uh, the the Argentina agribusiness, which is as corrupt as the Brazilian agribusiness as well. So it's 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 horrible. It's uh, all these countries. They are being bled from the inside by their so-called elites, uh, old elites, land-owning elites, especially, and the new bourgeoisie, the the, the people who emerged with the Carlos Menem in Argentina, for instance, or uh, and they were supporting Macri as well. And in Brazil, the people who are supporting Bolsonaro. It's 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 absolutely disgusting. And uh, uh, and and there's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. They are uh, are easily instrumentalized by foreign interests, especially American, uh, be it American big business or Wall Street for that matter. Uh, in the in the Brazilian case, is uh, how the the pre-salt oil reserves, which which are the largest. Uh, oil reserves on the planet discovered this uh, century anywhere on the planet and every uh, big oil a uh, major all around the world they are looking at it and they know that they're going to get a crack at it because uh, petrobras is being sidelined by their own government in brazil which is can you imagine this happening in uh, malaysia with petronas no way or in in russia with gazprom no way but in brazil they don't care about petrobras they want to sell pre-salt for foreigners essentially american companies so it's the prospects are <laughs> when you uh, in the long run the big picture is very very gloomy. But uh, let, let's see with Argentina if they manage to set an example, and they're going to get some help from China as well. China is going to keep buying Argentina agricultural products; they need it. So this, in terms of their uh, balance of payments, is going to help, of course. And the problem is they have to pay uh, an unpayable $58 billion loan by the IMF. This is going to be very hard. as well. Pepe, it's great to be able to share your insights with our listeners. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. We've been speaking with veteran Brazilian journalist, independent geopolitical analyst and, analyst and writer Pepe Escobar. He joined us from Bangkok, Thailand. Joining us to speak to the role indigenous peoples have played in the struggle against the neoliberal project across Latin America is John Aniwanika Shurto, a past guest of this program. He's the founder and editor of Intercontinental Cry, which for 13 years has covered stories for more than 650 indigenous nations around the world. He joins us from his home in Winnipeg. Could you give us some background on the motivation behind the indigenous groups involved with the Ecuadorian protests and how they were able to galvanize such historic mobilization on relatively short notice? Well, um, you know, I think, uh, as is the case with um, most indigenous movements, but not primarily they were uh, motivated by the, the threat to their own, um, um, their own needs. Um, and, you know, they, they, they really just uh, did what most indigenous movements do, particularly in Latin America, is just you know, organize at uh, a very impressive uh, rate to, you know, stand up to the 
um, challenges that they face. You know, that's, and that's really what, what, what it almost always boils down to. And um, in, the, in, in the case of Ecuador, I think we have uh, a very unique political environment for indigenous peoples. Though so it's not exclusive to Ecuador, there's several other um, um, countries, you know, specifically in Latin America, where indigenous peoples are, are able to um, organize um, on uh, very profound levels um, very quickly and to keep those uh, movements going. And I think what we saw in Ecuador was uh, a very smart move on, on part of the president to uh, capitulate and to, you know, with, withdraw this uh, ridiculous um, and very irresponsible uh, scheme to, uh, you know, uh, reform the economy. Uh, of course, it's it's not over yet. You know, this is just you know day two. Um, well, uh, day two of the second month. You know, like this is something that's been going on for decades and decades, and and, and will continue. But um, you know, as, as we've seen in Ecuador specifically, uh, the indigenous movement there is you know very effective at organizing permanent campaigns to um, um, push for. Uh, radical political change, you know, like the uh, indigenous peoples there have um, been involved in the uh, removal of uh, three uh, presidents since uh, 1997, and, you know, Moreno could be the fourth uh, unless he does right by them and and, and the general public, but specifically uh, indigenous peoples in the case of of, of Kanai and the um, um, other um, indigenous Organizations there that um, represent the um, the um, indigenous peoples that live there. Kanai representing the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, they 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 are by far the 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 largest um, indigenous organization in Ecuador. You could equate them to uh, AFN with integrity, if uh, just, <laughs> just to make that uh, connection there. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, they, there's a couple of decades of, of uh, you know mobilizing and, and refining their uh, abilities and, and techniques. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's. I guess you could say it's been. Uh, well, I, I don't want to say perfected, but it's been. You know, there's there's been enough experience from the indigenous movement there to understand the strategy that's necessary to affect change, and. It's been it's been very effective in 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 Ecuador specifically, but you know we've seen it in um, you know Bolivia, um, Peru, Colombia, and then you know elsewhere throughout the entire region. Um, not so much um, elsewhere around the world, um, mm. which which I you know watch also closely because I just think it's all kind of the same struggle. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, strategy, and it's. It's worked. It worked. It has worked for for an organization like like uh, Kanai, which represents you know many indigenous peoples, but also for a specific indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 it's an interesting strategy that, that also the the Zapatista were very effective at using, and also um, on a on a more localized level, the uh, Quechua community of Sariaku in Ecuador, which has you know been able to stop. Um, I think four or five oil companies uh, from from entering their territories, right? And 
I spoke to Marlon Santi years ago to understand the strategy that they used and um, and and continue to use. And he commented that you know they organize locally, nationally, internationally, um, and then they just focus on you know holding holding their ground and and not um, not stepping back and you know being being very strategic about everything they do. And it has worked 100% of the time so far. And um, yeah, so it's it's uh, something that everybody I think needs to take time to to fully grasp and appreciate and support and understand and use because it works. And I think it works especially for Indigenous peoples because there is an enormous amount of, of power in, in in Indigenous rights that non-Indigenous populations don't necessarily have. You know, a, a certain level of you know political uh, legitimacy that that most indigenous peoples don't possess because they're kind of, you know, subject to the women wills of the state. Whereas indigenous peoples, you know, are to a point, but there's, there's also a, um, a certain level of uh, freedom and, and separation from the state because of, because of indigenous rights. Maybe uh, just a possible case study of, of what you're referring to there. I know that Evo Morales is seen by much of the left as a crusader against neoliberal policies, but uh, looking at a, a September 2019 article in Intercontinental Cry, it points to plans by the, Bolo- the, the Bolivian government uh, being apparently at, at cross-purposes with the indigenous tribes in the Chiquitania region as the, you know, it's been threatened by uh, fires, wildfires that uh, it, the article claims were fostered by the government in order to encourage agribusiness and, and cattle ranching. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that situation and how, how it informs our understanding of how one can successfully fight neoliberalism while championing indigenous solidarity work? Well, that's a tough thing. You know, like, it's a delicate situation for him specifically because he's trying to please everybody and he's trying to stay in power and, and, and not end up with, you know, uh, a return to the past or a, uh, or, or open the door to um, a, a Brazilian boloncero, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, it is really a, a delicate balancing act, and I think when, when it comes to supporting indigenous peoples and, you know, some and, and a indigenous leader like Brazil, like uh, like Morales, or, or 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 anyone who is who is on the left, I think we just kind of have to um, hold them up to the same standard as we would anybody else. And you know, I I also said this often of, of Hugo Chavez, who was also taking moves against indigenous peoples. It's a fantastic opportunity for. Chavez at the time, and for Morales and other indigenous leaders, uh, or other left leaders, to uh, take responsibility and to 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 really be righteous and to do the right thing, and you know that's that this is what we expect of of the right, and even though they are largely incapable of it, it seems um, it's it's a prime opportunity for us to grow and strengthen and to hold on to that integrity, and you know so what if Evo Morales is is, is making um, grievous mistakes that undermined undermine indigenous peoples and the environment. I mean, it's it's a shame that that's happening, but it's also an opportunity to self-correct. And I think Morales has the capacity to do that, as De Silva did, as Correa did, as many other uh, left-leaning presidents and leaders uh, have 
you know, throughout history. Mm. Now, just before we, we close, I, I want to uh, give you a chance to uh, to talk about this podcast you're trying to put together for Intercontinental Cry. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that podcast is intended to sound like once it gets off the ground and, and how they could possibly support it? Thank you. Well, the, uh, the podcast is a 30-minute is a, uh, news report that is just going to go over the, the highlights of every major action connected to indigenous rights that takes place around the world each week. And it's a very valuable and a very useful a tool because it's virtually impossible to really get a solid grasp of everything that's happening, you know, locally, nationally, and internationally um, to and by indigenous peoples. Um, you know, like it's, it, it, it's, I've, I've been putting in probably about, 15 to 20 hours of research each week just to just to compile um, the information and um, yeah I, I've, I'm it's really helping me stay on top of everything that's going on in the world and I think many other people too who are who are following it and yeah to support that people can just visit our website intercontinentalcry.org and just click on anything that uh, refers to the podcast or um, you know. Um, donate monthly so we can start producing it. And uh, we're also now working to produce a TV show that will also be largely the same as the podcast that we're aiming to launch um, this January. Um, we were asked this year by uh, FNX, which is the first and only Indigenous TV broadcaster in the U.S., uh, to produce a show for them that um, brings our unique take on on everything um, to 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 their um, um, to their network, and uh, they reach over 47 million houses in the in the U.S. and they also have um, par- uh, partnerships with um, APTN and uh, Maori Television and Taiwan Indigenous TV and, and Nepal Indigenous TV. So it's it's an amazing opportunity. Um, you know, uh, we just have to find funding for it, and it's you know it's tough. But if you know people come to I see. You know, they can they, they can find an opportunity to, um, to to support this work so that we can really, you know, ed- educate the public and and inform the public so they they know you know the facts of everything that's going on here, you know, regardless of um, you know personal beliefs or yeah. opinions. Well, there's certainly no other. Uh outlet in the English language that provides that kind of coverage of indigenous struggle around the world. So I certainly thank you for your work and and wish you well with these uh, projects, uh, the podcast and and, uh, television broadcast. Uh, Thanks so much. Appreciate that, Michael. Okay. It means a lot to me. John Aniwanika Shirto is founder and editor of Intercontinental Cry. Uh, For access to the site, as you just heard, just uh, you can visit intercontinentalcry.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. 